listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. word, people of Israel, the word of the Lord has spoken against you, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, who store up in their fortresses what they have plundered and looted. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. An enemy will overrun your land, pull down your strongholds, and plunder your fortresses. Our New Testament reading comes from 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 17. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you might say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. And still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one can say that you are baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can take a seat. Thanks, Allison and Betsy. Thank you. All right, did you know that yesterday our little church turned five years old? We should have a birthday cake or something like that. I, I was remembering this morning, this, uh, you know, it was, it was January 21st, 2018. Some of you were there. And, oh, man, it was, it was fun and it was a little scary. We decided that we, we wanted to do an unlaunch of a church, meaning... Uh, we tried to do it quietly. We didn't have a social media campaign. We didn't do door knockers. We just prayed. We memorized scripture together as a, a group launch in a church. And we just hoped and trusted that people would come. That whole John 15, 5 thing. If you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear fruit. We thought, can you launch a church like that? Well, let's give it the old college try. And I remember at our old building, uh, I was downstairs, you know, just a bundle of emotions, looking at these cars pull in, and I'm wondering, is anybody going to come? And I'm watching all these strangers walk up the hill toward the chapel, and I think, who are these people and why are they here? My grandma, Marie Smith, who went to be with the Lord, was there. The, the picture that I sent to our staff and to our board yesterday shows grandma with her, you know, her white hair sitting at the back, sitting next to, you know, a 17-year-old. And I am just so grateful to God to get to be a part of this and to get to, you know, with all of you, be the Church of Cornerstone. What a great gift. 
And what's amazed me from the beginning is that the church has not been, in some ways, homogenous. We are more white than I pray that we will be in the years to come. I hope that the Lord will cultivate those relationships, will be more ethnically diverse in the years to come. But from a spiritual background, we have a lot of diversity in this room. There are many people in here who have been raised Roman Catholic. I see you when I cross myself at the end of the service. I'm glad that you feel the freedom to do that. You bow to the cross. We have people who come from an Episcopal or an Orthodox background. We've got all kinds of Bible church and Baptist people. We've got Presbyterians. We've got Lutherans. We've got Church of Christ. We've got one Mennonite that I'm aware of. Non-denominational charismatics, oneness Pentecostals, and we all ended up in one church being one church together. Each of us have gathered in this room, in this city, at this point in time, driven by some kind of hunger or curiosity. And it's the Lord Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, that's called us together, has instigated our union. And as is appropriate from time to time in the life of the church, I want to set expectations and remind you again that ambition that we feel together called to pursue, the mission of our church. Say this with me. We're called to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. A community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. And this language flows very naturally from the conversations we've had in recent weeks in this season of epiphany about how God wants to take these disparate groups of people and form them into one new family. On the first Sunday of epiphany, we looked at the particular gospel that we preach in the church. The gospel we preach is not spirituality in a vague way or like generic religion, but it's the particular message of everything that God is doing in the person of Jesus Christ to reconcile the world to himself. And how that gospel compels us to be present as Christians in those places where his name is not honored. Ellison and Betsy are embodying this in a way that we're all in our own ways meant to embody Last week we talked about how the call of Jesus provokes us to follow him. We as individuals must respond to that call. The call of Jesus is to follow him, but that call creates a community. Something that many of us have learned the hard way is that community is complicated. Some of you are here because things were complicated there before. Church can be complicated. You have different expectations. You have misunderstandings. You have hurt feelings. Sometimes you have diverging beliefs. The church can be complicated, but that complicated community is the very context of our salvation. It's in community that God gives us the gift and the challenge of other people. And other people can be like scouring pads for our ego. Uh, Eugene Peterson said there are two things you need to have a real church. If you want a real church, you've got to look for these two things. One of them is the apostles' teaching, the faith that has been passed down to us from the very beginning. The other thing that you need if you want to have a real church is people that you wouldn't normally hang out with. That's what you need to have a real church. And in the gift of church, we're given these the gift and the challenge of friends, of fellow believers who can wear us down, our, our ego, our pride teach us in the, their challenging presence how to live together as a community. And it's by belonging not just to a local church, but to the capital C Church of Jesus Christ that we become heirs of the story and heirs of the truth. Paul called the church the pillar and the foundation of truth. 
Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, commenting on the inherited nature of our faith, he said, What I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was raised in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to many, and that he ascended into heaven. He tells us by belonging to Christ's church, we recognize we're not making this stuff up. We can't pick and choose the things that we like, the things that are palatable to us, but we're heirs of the story, heirs of the whole truth that has been passed down to us. And like one big game of telephone, beginning with the ascension of Jesus and the descent of the Spirit, we're trying to discern together what is the pure message of the gospel that's been passed down to us. We recognize with humility that at times this game of telephone has diverged from the original message, and it's the, the church is this self-correcting institution that the Spirit always beckons us back to a place of pure obedience and a pure reception of the gospel. But we mustn't be idealistic about the church. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I shared last week, said, in thinking about the church, God hates visionary dreamers. He hates those people who have their own preconceived notion of what the local church should be like and therefore become an enemy of the church that actually is. The same Bonhoeffer who said this also said, the word of God is stronger in my brother than in myself. So we must be realistic about the nature of the church and also recognize that God has given us a gift in our brothers and sisters in Christ, that hearing the word of God preached to us from them is a gift that we need, a gift that we cannot give ourselves. And it's in and through the church that we realize that like, the whole idea that's popular now of listen to your heart is terrible advice. Because the truth and the wisdom that we need is not intrinsic to ourselves. It's beyond us and it's outside of us. Our identity even is given to us in our baptism. As the Father says over us, you are my son, you are my daughter that I love. With you I am well pleased. The church has a key role to play. Paul said powerfully in Ephesians 3, Now, through the church... The manifold wisdom of God is being made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Through the church, this is happening. I often think that this is a terrible plan. Anybody else? Partially because I know church leadership. I know my own proclivity towards stupidity. I know my own sin. I know my own folly. And I know yours too. God says through the church, he is letting the, his manifold wisdom be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places through Jesus Christ. This language of through the church, the manifold wisdom being made known is lovely and wonderful and grand, but I wonder, thinking about the people that you serve with in kids' ministry or the people that you're friends with, the people in your apprentice group, do the interactions you have with other believers in the church and the general experience of being part of the church, does it feel like the manifold wisdom is being made known in that way? I mean, does it feel glorious? Does it feel supernatural? It usually feels very, very different than that. It usually feels far too earthy. It feels to me in interacting with the church like I feel when I look in the mirror. There's a combination of the good and the bad, the vice and the virtue. There's beauty and there's also brokenness, and those are both ever-present with us. In interacting with the church, there are glimpses of glory, but there are more often memorials of the mundane. It's normal. 
And so I would ask the, the scriptures and looking at Ephesians 3, in what way is the manifold wisdom of God being made known through the church, this complicated community? I would say in calling the deformed to be reformed through Jesus the Messiah and together to be formed into one new family. It's in the unity of the church. I loved how Ellison, in, in reading that message from a Muslim background believer in the Middle East, he said, we talking about us together. How is the manifold wisdom of God being made known that we who are deformed and malformed by sin are being reformed into the image of Jesus Christ to be formed into one new family together? And if there's something that can unite people in the Middle East and believers Believers here, believers in Africa and Australia and Asia, all over the world, that is something that is truly remarkable. And in that unity, the manifold wisdom of God is being made known. As we look at the texts assigned for today, there are texts that I probably wouldn't choose. That's part of the wisdom of preaching through the lectionary is we're given these scriptures that over the course of the year, we're generally going to preach through the entire Bible. We read from Amos this morning. Have you ever heard a sermon on Amos? Probably you Acts 29 people did at one point. It was like 34 weeks on, you know, Amos. I thought that was funny. Well, it's funny. It's like each of these texts bring, it's not funny, they bring us a message of challenge. I would not choose Amos 3 for our teaching text because it's an uncomfortable word. Each of, these, each of these texts bring us a word of challenge and a word of correction. Here's part of Amos 3, again, from the message version of the Bible. Listen to this, Israel. God is calling you to account. And I mean all of you, everyone connected with the family that he delivered out of Egypt. Listen, out of all the families of the earth, I picked you. Therefore, because of your special calling, I'm holding you responsible for all your sins. God, through the prophet, is speaking to these people, saying, you were chosen, you were set apart for a purpose which you've denied and neglected, and God is calling them to return to their purpose. He's giving them a word of challenge and a word of correction to the people together. We go to 1 Corinthians and hear this again, 1 Corinthians 1.10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and in thought. Have you ever been a part of a group of people that was truly united in mind and thought? This is an ambitious calling from Paul. Now, there's the whole discussion about does unity mean uniformity? Well, to a certain degree, he's calling for uniformity of thought. I want you to believe the same things, that which has been passed on to you. Calls for perfect unity of mind and in thought. The text goes on to describe how the, the, this church in Corinth has been divided according to the preacher that they like the most. And some are like, well, I am a total Paul person. Paul is really doing it. And others are like, no, I really like a, a Paulo. And then others are Cephas. And then like the Bible, you know, the, the super like Sunday school person was like, well, you know who I like? Jesus. I'm like, dang it, we should have said that. <laughs> Attaching to a certain preacher, this, this betrays the unity that God has called for in his church. John 17, I pray that they may be one as I and the Father are one. 
calls that, that we may be united in mind and in thought. He gives a word of challenge and correction. Jesus, when he begins his ministry in Matthew's gospel, the, the opening line of his sermon is, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you've taken catechesis, you know the answer. What does it mean for you to repent? To repent means that I have a change of heart, turning from sinfully serving myself to serving God as I follow Jesus Christ. I need God's help to make this change. Jesus says, in my own quiet way, I'm inaugurating a kingdom that you join through repentance, having a change of mind and a change of heart, turning from serving yourself to serving God as we follow Jesus Christ. Jesus says, repent. Again, it's a word of challenge, and it's a word of correction. The deformed are reformed and are formed into a new family as we repent, as we receive the, the rebuke the challenge of God given to us in Jesus Christ. Now, one thing that I want us to appreciate as we hear these words, the words of Amos are really, really challenging and difficult. I'm going to hold you accountable for all your sins. Something I want you to appreciate is the call to repentance in the Scriptures is almost always firstly extended to insiders. This hard word of rebuke and challenge is almost always firstly extended to insiders. In the church, we are meant to call one another to live rightly and to think rightly, to do this with gentleness and humility. And when it comes to dealing with sin and disunity and wrong thinking, we actually do have a role to play in teaching and challenging and correcting each other. But that's a role that's focused firstly on insiders, on people who are already a part of God's family. Now, here's the really, really big problem. And some of you who are reluctant to identify as part of the church would say this is maybe like reason A1 for your reluctance. The really big problem is that what church people normally do, instead of speaking a word of challenge and rebuke and correction and love to insiders, is what church people normally do is we're hard on outsiders. And we're lenient on insiders. You do not see Christians picketing their own churches when things go off course. And this is why our message is incredible, not credible to so many people in our city right now. Is that they find us to be mean and legalistic to people who are outside of the family and oblivious to the obvious sins that we bear. This is what Jesus was on about in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, hey, you know that gigantic plank coming out of your eye? Let's start there. The Scriptures tend to take the opposite approach that American church people typically do. Paul, 1 Corinthians 5, what business it is, is it of mine to judge those outside the church? He's saying, it's not my business. The first Peter 4, Peter says, it's time for judgment to begin within God's household. I think it's really important for us to appreciate, to have our heads on straight and, and understand we must not expect those who are not following Jesus to think and act and believe like followers of Jesus. And further, we shouldn't expect that those who are followers of Jesus will behave like followers of Jesus all the time. But it's our duty, our call as the church to encourage and challenge one another toward those ends and confess readily when we fail to, to do so. And tell me, how different 
would the reputation of church people be if we were more serious and sober-minded about our own sin and our own immaturity and confess readily and publicly as insiders when we screwed up and were more gracious and free of judgment toward outsiders? How different would things be? They know the word of critique is always going to come within the family first. And a word of grace seasoned with salt is always going to be extended to those who are outside first. Our reputation, our credibility in the public square would look vastly different. But this is something I began to wrestle with as I thought about this language I'm using of insiders and outsiders, which is very black and white. I began to wonder, well, who are the insiders? In the early centuries of the church, it was a little more easy to discern. When persecution was a a known public issue, the deacons are at the door checking you for your Are You Baptized card. That every person who was going to be part of corporate worship had already undergone the process of catechesis, or they were the children of the catechized. And they had already been baptized, something that came at great social cost. And so Sunday gatherings with the deacons checking your baptism card at the door is a gathering of the believers, those who have willfully chosen to be part of the body of Christ and have been trained to live as Christians. Non-believers were not present in the worship gathering. But think about how different our gatherings are today in our context. The church gatherings are now open to anyone, but not everyone who comes is open to the teaching and the correction of the church. Anyone can come, but not just anyone is here ready to be challenged, ready to be corrected and to submit. And this is where I began to think, oh, that archaic idea of church membership? oh, that might actually play a really important part of our discipleship together. If you've been wondering how to join the church and you don't know how to find answers, it's because there hasn't been an answer to the question yet. In five years, we've not yet officially had church membership. Early on, I thought, well, I don't want church membership to be just a status where, you know, like when I served at another church, a local news anchor came on Easter and joined, and then I never saw him again. It's like, I don't want church membership to be a status. Church membership should be something that you do. And so we've, you know, measured behaviors, not status. But there is something about willfully saying, I am in on this and I'm submitting to the process. By virtue of becoming a member of a local church, not only are you willfully identifying with the whole body of Christ, you're also communicating to this local body, I am open to correction And I'm willing to be called to Christ-likeness. In joining a local church, you're saying, if and when you see me failing to uphold the high calling of following Jesus, if you see me betraying a Christian sexual ethic, if you observe that I'm hoarding resources and not making a habit of giving generously and sacrificially, If you observe that I'm speaking dishonorably about other people or divisively on social media, if you notice that I'm exchanging my kingdom identity for a lesser partisan political identity, if you observe that I'm neglecting or harming the good world that God created or having little regard for the poor or twisting or ignoring the scriptures to suit my fancy, then I need you to tell me when I'm in the wrong. 
Help me to see the error of my ways. Tell me the truth in love. Encourage me to walk in the light. By virtue of that, that awkward and sometimes vulnerable step of actually joining, putting down roots in a local community, you're saying, I'm subjecting myself to the awkward and the messy and at times the painful process of living in community as part of Christ's community, so I welcome correction that I may be made more fully into the image of Jesus Christ. In five years' time, we've not done it, but it may well be for the sake of our mission. For the sake of, of, of our, our, the purposes to which God has called us, that we need to take this step so we can be more diligent and serious about calling one another to follow Jesus in community. And I say this is one who's learning along the way. But the absolute best posture for any of us to be in is not to be in a spot where others are always having to chase us down to point out, hey, man, you were way in the wrong about this, but for us to be the one who's chasing down wisdom and truth and correction One of the first passages of Scripture I ever studied was Proverbs 2. If you cry aloud for insight and seek for wisdom as for hidden treasure, it will be given to you. We want to be in this spot where we don't even have to introduce language like church discipline or, God forbid, accountability partners. But we're actually running to one another, James 5.16, to confess our sins to each other and pray for each other so that we may be healed. We are so eager to be well and so aware of how malformed and deformed we've become that we seek the reformational work of the Holy Spirit that He gives us in the work of the church. This is the, the end of the psalm that we read in the middle of songs. David models a really great posture for the mature believer. Praying, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. He wrote elsewhere in Psalm 19, who can discern their own errors? Appreciating that he doesn't even know the ways in which he's in the wrong, says, Lord, if there is any offensive way in me, correct me, train me, purify my mind and my heart. And this is the posture that's appropriate for those who are moving toward maturity in Christ. And this is precisely what we do at the table each week. The Scriptures teach us that when we come to receive Holy Communion, it's appropriate for a woman and for a man to reflect on their own lives, to confess their sins, to confess our need of grace, to ask the Holy Spirit to search us and reveal those places of error within us, to surrender our sin and our arrogance and our pride the things that divide us from one another, and to take up the pardon of Jesus Christ and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, Jesus, we feast on who's present at the table with us. And we're also called to discern how to wisely live together as the body of Christ. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and first go and be reconciled with your brother. This correction is not just an individual, but it's social and it's relational. We confess to God our sins. We also confess to one another, hey, I blew it. I was rude. I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? It's in this kind of self-reforming community that God wants to form us into a new family. We who are malformed and deformed, being reformed by the Spirit to be formed into one new family together. And somehow in our Christian unity, not just in the local church by belonging 
to something bigger. God is making his manifold wisdom known to the world, that it's precisely through us with our egos and our sin and our brokenness that God wants to do something spectacular in the world. Let's pray together. Jesus, here I am again talking in rosy and romantic language about the church when most of the time outside of this moment it doesn't feel like that. And yet, would you catch us up, Lord Jesus, into the greater story and the greater good that you're trying to do in the world? Through the church and in our own way through this local church, we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would form us more fully into the image of Jesus Christ. I pray that you pour out your spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be more than just a memorial meal for us, but a means by the spirit through which we feast on the life of God. Jesus, cause us to overflow with your fruits, cause us to overflow with humility such that we confess our sins. Fill us with your gifts to challenge and encourage one another. Take us into the next place of maturity as a community, speaking the truth to one another in love. And help our words and dealing with those outside the family of God to be full of grace and seasoned with salt. Jesus, we love you and we ask for your help. As we close, let's pray this prayer together called the Collect for Purity. Pray, Almighty God, to you all hearts are open and all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ Jesus our Lord. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.